Good afternoon. Um, I'm Mark Lawson. Welcome to Valuing the Humanities, uh, organized by the British Philosophical Association and the Forum for European Philosophy. Uh, I, these speakers have so many titles between them that I won't read them out, but they're available for you to read up there. Um, rather commendably, although one of the panelists is qualified to be addressed as President, Master, and Lord, um, he's, uh, he's decided to drop all of them and would like to be known as Martin for the purposes of this afternoon. If anyone else wants to use those titles while he um, has relinquished them, then um, just pick them up. We've, um, what's going to happen is that the four panelists will speak for 10 to 15 minutes each, and then we'll open it up to the audience and um, we'll see how we go. But before we have any formal speeches, um, I asked a question of the organizer when I came in, that did, uh, because it's, I'm an outsider to a lot of this, I said, does everyone accept what the humanities are and what we mean by that? And um, I was told not necessarily. So um, Martin, would you like to start um, by defining humanities? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I guess we should. Uh, um we're talking about humanities and maybe social sciences, and humanities includes both uh, something like history and literary criticism, but also the creative arts. And I think we have to distinguish the creative arts uh, from the um, uh, other literary studies and history. And there's an important difference there, because uh, uh, in uh, the sciences, um, scientists are both the creators and the critics of their subjects. In the uh, humanistic uh, subjects, they are often different people. Uh, so I think we have to decide whether we're going to include creative arts. I guess we're probably not going to do creative arts, but are we going to include creative arts? Well, I think we are, perhaps. I guess we are going to include the social sciences. We're having difficulty hearing, so yes, we're having okay. trouble with the microphones. I think there aren't quite enough microphones, so ah. I think the speakers um, will have to yes, okay. move a microphone yes. towards them or move towards the microphone. Mm, yes. Well, I mean, it's not for me to decide what the scope should be, but I think uh, uh, humanities and social sciences are often coupled together. Um, but within the humanities, uh, we have to distinguish uh, what you might call the scholarship type of the humanities and the creative arts. And whether we're considering creative arts, I think, is a separate matter. We're considering, I think, more the kind of topics that feature dominantly in mainstream universities, which would include the humanities, um, philosophy, literary studies, history, etc., and the social sciences. Does anyone else on the panel, before we start the formal proceedings, have, have a view on what we're talking about? <laughs> Well, I guess I would just say that I would like to include the study of all the arts, uh, not the performance aspect so much, but the art history, music history, and, and so on. I mean, is that congenial to you? Uh, not that we'll talk about that specifically, but yeah. Very good. Um, you want to say anything? Well, maybe I just, because oddly enough, because I thought, well, what exactly are the humanities? I looked it up on Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> That's a bit which is, risky. Which is a very reliable source. Mm. Um, and I would, I mean, oddly enough, they draw a distinction between the social sciences and humanities. And to some extent, when I was thinking about what I was going to say, I'm not going to talk so much about the social sciences. Because I think certainly when it comes to health, which is my particular interest, I mean, the, the, the link between the social sciences and health is very, very strong. The, the link with humanities, I think, needs to be stronger is what I'm going to 
argue. So I'm, and I'm certainly, like you, I would include criticism of the, of the creative arts, because I think that's a rich source of, of ideas. So that's how I'm thinking about it. James, you might as well say something. <laughs> um, well, just to say that, that some people in the humanities make it their business to do something like criticism of science. Um, I'm here um, billed as a philosopher of science, and um, so... The scientists are their own critics. So, yes. <laughs> scientists may think that they don't need critics for the humanities. <laughs> But uh, nonetheless, we exist. Um, I mean, critics in the, in this sense, not of, um, no, in the broader sense of, mm. of commentators, people who study the products of science as opposed to people who crit you know, criticise science in the, in the pejorative sense, the narrow sense of, of do it down. I'm not talking about that kind of criticism. Criticism like, like literary criticism, you know, the, the appreciation of science is just as much as criticism of it. Okay, well, if we start by um, asking uh, Martha Professor Nussbaum to uh, begin the afternoon. Now, um, MM suggested we should stand up yeah. when we're talking. Is that what, what you prefer? Okay. Well, um, you can guess my emphasis by the title of a book I've just published, Not for Profit, Why Democracy Needs the Humanities. Uh, now, I think there are actually quite a lot of different kinds of arguments that can be made in defense of the humanities. And it should be pointed out that even if a nation's aim was simply to increase uh, its gross national product per capita, which is indeed some people's aim, uh, even then, one can make a very strong case for the humanities. China and Singapore, who certainly do not have the aim to create a flourishing participatory democracy, have both decided within the last three years that they ought to inject more humanities into both schools and higher education, simply because they realize that their business culture is short on creativity and innovation, and short on the kind of internal criticism that can keep things from going soft and corrupt. So it's very interesting to observe that cultures that have defined their educational mission solely in terms of economic growth still feel the need for more humanities. Uh, of course, the way they actually are promoting it keeps them on a very short leash indeed. Uh, there's no role for critical argument in the sphere of politics or political thought. And indeed, uh, in Singapore, teachers can actually be sued for libel if they criticize the government. But in any case, they, they, in a very narrowly cabined way, they've introduced more critical thinking and more arts. Now, uh, what I think is that we shouldn't just rest with that argument, which indeed we can make, and it seems correct, but we should think about the goals of a decent society and what it is we really want a system of education to be producing for and in that society. And so I've focused on what it is we need if we want a decent, stable democracy to exist one that doesn't simply enrich itself like a, a, a big profit-generating machine, but one that promotes opportunities for what uh, one of the US founders called life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So what do we need to have if a democratic public culture is to exist? Obviously, we need to talk about elementary and secondary education, not just about universities. But I think each of the things I'm going to mention has its place at all of these levels in increasing types of sophistication. 
The first uh, is the capacity for analyzing an argument, for thinking about its structure, thinking about whether it's a good argument, whether the conclusions follow from the premises, and in general, for doing what Socrates uh, strongly urged us all to do, to lead the examined life. And I think it's just as true now, and if not more so than in ancient Athens, that people in a democracy decide things hastily without asking what they mean by their terms, without asking whether arguments are good or bad, and they rush precipitously to conclusions that may be quite uh, counterproductive to their ultimate ends, because they haven't examined the argument. So we all need to do that. Now, of course, we need to begin doing that early, and there are many reasons to think that children could be brought along and learn the structure of arguments much, much earlier than they do. But um, in university, we can do this with increasing sophistication. One of the great works on this topic, which I particularly love, is John Stuart Mill's rector's address when he was rector of St. Andrew's University in Scotland. And he's trying to say what's great about the Scottish system, which does give humanities to every student, and what, by contrast, he thinks is impoverished in the English system, which did not do that. And uh, he points out that for example, the study of Plato's dialogues is of enormous help to the functioning of a person as an active citizen because it teaches you to accept nothing on trust and to look into everything. And it, it shows you a structured way of doing that. And he also recommends the study of formal logic for a similar set of quite practical reasons. Now, I, I think we see that every day when we do teach Plato, that, that people learn a different relationship to their fellow citizens and to the whole job of political argument. Um, I've interviewed students who, in this soundbite culture, don't really think of political argument as anything else but just trying to shout out your position more loudly and defeat or humiliate the opposition. And in their philosophy courses at the university level, they learn a sophisticated and respectful attitude toward the opposition, which consists in trying to understand each argument's structure, figuring out what the two positions might share, and then moving forward constructively from there. And I think this is something that's desperately needed if democracy is to survive the present onslaught of sound bites and media insults. So that's the first thing, and I really do think with Mill that that's for everyone. Now then, second thing, and this would be more associated with history, is the understanding of the world we live in and its complexities. Again, with increasing sophistication at different ages, but once we get to university, there are things we can do, such as trying to gain a grasp of world history and the many different cultures, the many different religions that our world contains, and to get a grasp of the global economy, how it works, in the light of some decent grasp of economic history. Now, one can argue, I think, that if these things had been adequately conveyed, a lot of the disaster that's now before us would not be before us, because if you understand economic history, then you really could have anticipated many of these problems. So politics really does need historical understanding. Uh, again, um, the knowledge of what Islam is, its many varieties, the different debates within it. All of this, I think, is necessary if we're going to avoid what we largely have today, a culture of suspicion and fear. 
So uh, that's the second one, and I think it, it does, of course, also include the study of the different racial and ethnic groups in your own society. So becoming a, a, a well-rounded citizen. And again, Mill actually did stress this. He, he had a rather limited conception of this one. He focused on the study of international law, which I think is great, but I, I would rather see this international side in a, in a broader way. And the third one is uh, one that I think has to run through the other two, and that is the refinement and cultivation of the participatory imagination. Now, we are all capable as primates, uh, higher primates, uh, so to speak, of perspectival thinking, and we, we have the capacity to see the world from the point of view of another creature, but we don't use it very well most of the time, and we use it very narrowly. We might learn as children to try to see the world from the point of view of our own father or mother, but all too rarely do we systematically cultivate in ourselves the ability to see the world from the point of view of, let's say, an immigrant or an African-American and so on. So this perspectival capacity needs to be extended, refined, and cultivated. And if we don't have that, what happens is that the different people who come our way in political life end up being treated as objects rather than as people. To see someone as a person, you, you really have to be able to participate in, in their experiences. Now, of course, that's promoted especially by the, a certain kind of pedagogically rich study of literature and the study, I would say, also of music and fine art. Uh, and actually, this is, again, one that Mill emphasized. He, he called it aesthetic education. And he said that even though it does, of course, take place earlier in a child's uh, life in the family, it has to be refined and developed at the higher education level because it's only then that we become capable of appreciating the complexity of certain uh, very difficult works of art and that that is a humanly valuable capacity that affects our emotional and uh, political relationships with other people. Now, um, I think that that infuses the study of history. It makes it more than the study of a bunch of dis detached facts and it interacts really very, in, in, in important ways, with the cultivation of Socratic self-examination. Because self-examination, if it's not to be completely narcissistic, has to also be accompanied by an understanding of what these arguments mean uh, for the experience of people of many different kinds. So, so those are the things that I emphasize. And of course, this isn't the only case you can make for the humanities. They offer en enrichment in many parts of a person's life. The reason I focused on democratic public culture is that I actually think people who don't already see the value of the humanities, who are inclined to think that technical pre-professional education is the main thing, can actually be convinced by such an argument because they do want stable democracies in their society. So that's the reason I focus on that. Now then, a couple of other things. How should the humanities be incorporated into university education? I um, do agree with Mill that a, a university education for everyone ought to include these features in some way. And that's why I'm a great um, sympathizer with the US system of liberal arts education, which in its varied forms tries to make sure that all undergraduates 
have the rudiments of these three abilities. Uh, of course, it can be well or badly done, and, and I could go into that, but I do think that to see it as a cultivation of citizenship for everyone is, first of all, the most reasonable thing to do, because every single person is going to be an active citizen, and so we really need to give these abilities to everyone, not just the ones who opt to take a whole degree in philosophy. But also, it actually helps us in the present crisis, because we don't have to say to parents, oh, we're going to lure your child into doing philosophy, a subject in which we know there are no jobs, and that child will then give up all the other studies that produce jobs. No, we say, of course, you can choose as your major subject something that you might reasonably prefer because it leads to a job, but you will also be getting a general preparation for citizenship and life. And even in US colleges that are devoted to business education, usually these core humanities courses are required. So, so I actually think that that kind of mixed system is a great help in the present crisis because it's not an all or nothing choice. And it really is giving something that everyone needs but doesn't prevent you from doing something else that you want to do. Next, uh, I'll just say a word about funding. Now, it's for the others here who are from here to address the current crisis. I just will say that over the years, I've thought about why the US system is comparably healthy. Now, it's very threatened still, but why is it comparatively healthy? And I think it's a combination of this liberal arts system with a certain type of private funding. Now, I have to very qualify that very heavily because I don't think private funding in and of itself is either good or bad, but it's all a question of how it's structured. Given that, our leaders of society, our uh, rich people and so on, have all themselves had this liberal education. And they've had it usually in a form that they greatly enjoy and they remember with nostalgia. Then some of them, at least, come back and they're thinking about perpetuating it for their children, for their grandchildren. And they have a long-term view about society that politicians uh, can't always have. Politicians can't say, I'm laying the groundwork for the future health of democracy. But an independent individual can say that. And so that's the reason why in this context, where they've all had that kind of education and they understand its value, I think there's something to be gained from a, a certain level of reliance on private donors. And in my own university, we love to bring these people back and to give them seminars and weekends spent doing philosophy, doing literature, and re reminding them of the value of these studies. Uh, and, and then they, they really do generously support our enterprises. So I think this is a reason why the US systems, including state universities, which have largely sought private endowments by this time, and University of Michigan, for example, is indistinguishable from Harvard in the structure of its funding, even though nominally it's a state university. It's because of this, this combination of a certain kind of philanthropy, not just oriented toward um, short-term profit, and a certain type of prior liberal education. All of that combined further with tax incentives for charitable donations 
and heavy social and reputational incentives for that kind of philanthropy. These people know that in their community they will achieve great prestige from that kind of gift. And I think they do also think of it as a kind of surrogate immortality. Uh, so, so that it's uh, you know, the, the way that the US has thought about immortality, how, how do you make people immortal, uh, is, is really a lot about putting your money into something of public worth. And uh, so I would say where those four features are all present, private funding can work quite well. I don't think those four features are present in any European country at present. So I don't, I think rushing in the direction of private funding would be only to rush in the direction of people who might have narrower, uh, more uh, in, instrumental uh, attitudes towards uh, education. But in our case, I think this works comparatively well. So that's, uh, right, just one last thing I'd say is that politicians, in addition to having short-term incentives, needing to go before the electorate and say, I've produced so and so many jobs for the state of Virginia, they also, in my experience, are particularly caught up in silly debates uh, to a, an unfortunate degree. So that, for example, when there are campaigns to be regent of the University of Michigan, regent of the University of California, they'll often campaign on hot button issues of the day, such as, I will defund gay studies. I will defund women's studies. And so, really, politicians are a great threat to academic freedom. Now, I think private donors could be a threat to academic freedom if we just accepted any old condition on any old bequest. But there's long-standing traditions that have grown up about not letting them call the tune about what the money will be used for beyond a very general specification of the subject matter. So in that uh, sense, too, I think we're better off for the short term in the US with its particular history, relying on the, the private donors rather than the politicians. Thank you very much. Now, Martin Rees. Thank you. Well, I'll start off with a bit of the uh, UK context. Um, no country in the world has hitherto stopped public funding for a major segment of the teaching in its public universities, but this country is going to be the first to do so. The overall teaching grant for universities is being cut by 80%, by 100% for humanities and the social sciences and student fees are likely to double or even treble with uncertain consequences for student choices and morale. And it's this crisis which has stimulated us to articulate more forcefully why we value universities and the humanities and liberal education in particular. This drastic shift stemming from both budgetary pressure and conservative ideology is excused by the claim that market pressure will drive up quality and stimulate diversity. But to many of us, the analogy between buying a restaurant meal and choosing at the age of 18 something which determines your life chances seems very dubious. And the government policy, quite apart from the social consequence, is posing a huge risk to the future of institutions, namely our universities, which are crucial to our society and which are one of the UK's undoubted successes. That seems to me the context. Moreover, the UK already invests less in its universities than most other countries. 
We're 30% below the OECD average in public <coughs> investment in tertiary education, nearly 40% below the EU average. Already, before the plan cuts, we're spending less as a proportion of our GDP than countries such as Hungary, Mexico, Poland, or Brazil. But, of course, the most drastic feature of these proposals, the abolition of funding for teaching in the arts, humanities, and social sciences, seems driven by a managerial and instrumental view of education, a failure to appreciate how crucial it is that we should invest time, effort, and money in ensuring that our young people become well-educated in subjects crucial to our society, our well-being, and the quality of our lives as democratic citizens, and that's what Martha Nussbaum has articulated so eloquently. Well, I'm a scientist, but I want to make common cause with the humanities in deploring these cuts, and especially in the rhetoric that's used to justify them. My own science is in fields far away from applications, but nonetheless acknowledges basic to understanding, so it gives me some intellectual affinity with many humanities scholars. Nothing could have less seeming impact and relevance than dinosaurs and fossils, for instance, but few things are more fascinating to both young and old. And, of course, few ideas have had a broader cultural impact than those of Darwin. As then it said, the best idea anyone ever had, but no direct application. And ideas from the Newtonian universe to the modern quantum world have certainly been intellectually pervasive. Indeed, I'd regard anyone as culturally deprived who can't appreciate the chain of events that led to our being here. How, from some mysterious beginning, nearly 14 billion years ago, stars and atoms formed, then planets and biospheres, and on at least one biosphere, atoms assembled into creatures able to ponder the wonder and the mystery. This should surely be part of everyone's culture, as much as anything in the humanities. Indeed, science is the most universal culture. It can be shared by all nations and all faiths. Protons, proteins, and Pythagoras are the same in all parts of the world. But I've got enough perspective over other sciences, apart from my own rather sort of pure sciences, to be mindful of the huge extent to which science has empowered us to change the world, and the opportunities and threats that these novel advances in science will pose in future. And this gives me another separate reason for concern about the future of the humanities. That's because there's an ever-widening gap between what science will allow us to do and what is prudent or ethical actually to do. We must confront widely held anxieties that genetics, brain science, and artificial intelligence, for instance, may run away too fast, and that our impact on the global environment could be irreversibly damaging. So we must all, as citizens, address questions like, how will lengthening lifespans affect society? Should the law allow designer babies or mind-enhancing drugs? How should we value biodiversity? is intrinsically valuable apart from its use to us. In all such contexts, the best scientific advice is clearly essential. But these questions aren't solely scientific. Choices shouldn't be made by scientists alone. 
They equally involve ethics, economics, and social judgments. And those judgments must be made not just by decision makers, but by all citizens if there is uh, to be a proper democracy. And if there is to be a debate on these questions, which will loom larger and larger uh, in our politics, if that debate is to get beyond tabloid slogans, then we need people who have had some liberal education of the kind articulated by Martha Nussbaum. I've spoken so far as an individual citizen scientist. But in the recent UK debates on higher education, I've also had a sort of representative role as president of the Royal Society, which is the UK's Academy of Science. And in that role, I've been making common cause uh, with Adam Roberts, who is my humanistic counterpart, the president of the British Academy. And I should say that I've... Uh, been uh, rather wimpish compared to him because to uh, raise money for the humanities he did a sponsored cycle ride from Land's End to John O'Groats last <laughs> summer uh, to celebrate his 70th birthday. Uh, I'm afraid I, uh, I'm younger than him but I'm afraid I can't claim to have worked quite so hard for my subject as he did. But he's a great guy and our two humanities in our submissions to government, our two academies, sorry, in our submissions to government have urged jointly that it's in the UK's interests to support real academic excellence and it's affordable even in these straitened times. Moreover, this should be done right across the board. We need breadth to ensure that we are linked to the best research and scholarship worldwide and to attract and retain university faculty who can collectively sustain top-rate university education over all disciplines. And the academies have jointly confronted the vexing impact agenda. Clearly, research in all fields has a massive long-term impact on society and culture, not just in narrowly economic terms. And that's true in science, but that's also true in the humanities and social sciences. Indeed, a British Academy report argued compellingly that in its broader perspective, the impact of research in the social sciences and humanities is impressive and diverse. But we've both, in our two academies, been deeply sceptical about the attempts of Hefke to assess impact in a way that's fine-grained and short-term enough to be used in funding allocations. Even in medical science, where most research is well-targeted, any major innovation could be traced back to a variety of influences spanning 15 or 20 years. And the family tree of innovations in other fields is even longer and more diversely multi-branched, as it were. And it's incidentally even less feasible to assess impact at the proposal stage before the research has been done as the research councils have been requested. Even the wizards of venture capital have a hard job assessing the commercial impact of a scientific advance. And to expect a research council committee to make any worthwhile judgment and make it before the work's even been done is surely quite absurd. And it would be ironic if governments that, that have traditionally been unwilling to pick winners in industrial policy were to aspire to make such judgments upstream at the less predictable research level. When academics argue like this and argue for freewheeling research, we risk being accused of an ivory tower attitude that disregards our 
obligations to the public. But we should resist such accusations. Our choices of research project are anything but frivolous. What's at stake for us is a big chunk of our lives and our professional reputations. We're staking more than money on what we choose to do research in. And it's only by enabling leading academics to back their judgments that the UK can sustain high-quality universities. Whether you measure value in economic terms or, more broadly, in intellectual terms, one thing is clear. The difference in value between the very best research and the merely good is thousands of percent. So what's really crucial even in the government's perspective, from a narrow accounting perspective, isn't to make a few percent savings by scooping up, by improved efficiency in the office management sense. It's far more crucial to maximize the chance of real landmark achievements, which is done by attracting and supporting the right people, backing the judgment of those with the best credentials, and giving them the right environment. In uh, science, this year's winners of the Nobel Physics Prize are a good example. Andrei Geim and Kostin Novoselov, they were two Russians who came to work at Manchester University. Their work on graphene didn't need major equipment. Their clinching experiment famously involved a piece of sellotape, and that was all. But these men had staked several years of their lives and their reputations on their choice of topic, and Manchester University, with Royal Society support, offered the security and intellectual freedom they needed. That's an exemplar for how uh, curiosity-driven research can tremendously pay off. And in the sciences, of course, we are still better off than in the humanities in terms of funding. But already, I'm concerned that the atmosphere is becoming corrosive to open-ended inquiry, with the risk of losing these very high peaks, which have been so important in the past. I work in a fairly lively research group in Cambridge, and it's exhilarating when coffee-time conversation tosses out new ideas and debates the latest discoveries. But all too often, my colleagues are preoccupied with grant cuts, proposal writing, job security, and so forth. And prospects of breakthroughs will surely plummet if such concerns prey unduly on the minds of even the very best young researchers. Confidence and high morale are what drive creativity, innovation and risk-taking, whether in science, the arts, or indeed entrepreneurial activity. The UK's universities are major national assets because of their attraction for global talent, the collective expertise of their faculty and the consequent quality of the graduates they feed into all walks of life, the private and the public sector, people educated in science and humanities. Incidentally, despite our problems, we are in rather better shape than universities on mainland Europe. We've got more diversity of funding, more diversity of mission, and our universities have more autonomy over admission of students and governance. We show the benefit of the research university, which is now uh, manifest in the US and the UK, 
ironically, not so much in Germany, where they invented the idea, because in Germany the best research is hived off into separate research institutions. And indeed, I think the hiving off of the best researchers is a major drag on efforts to improve the universities in France and Germany, and we should uh, cherish the uh, model we have adopted, and that is one other reason why I'm concerned that we shouldn't jeopardise what is one of the UK's great successes. But we mustn't be complacent, and some restructuring of our university system is, in my view, needed. Indeed, it's overdue. Total enrolment in full-time higher education has risen from less than 10% in my student days to around 40% today. And this welcome expansion hasn't yet led to sufficient diversity. We can learn here from the US, which is home to several thousand institutions of higher education, junior and regional colleges, top-quality liberal arts colleges, huge state universities, many world-class, and the Ivy League private universities. Our system needs to evolve to some extent that way. But restructuring costs extra money in the short run, even though it may save in the long run. And it's a really implausible act of faith and excessive belief in efficient markets to think that this sort of restructuring will come about optimally driven by poorly informed and financially pressured student choices, which seems to teach you what's going to be happening here. In my view, our traditional specialised three or four year honours degree is not appropriate for all present day students. Indeed, I think I'd agree with Martha, it's not appropriate for anyone at all. All degrees should be broader than the traditional UK degree. We do need some sort of change. Mm -hmm. And we need a wider variety of courses, and I think a blurring between higher and further education. For instance, students who leave university after two years should be given some sort of credit to say they had two years of college and not be typecast as wastage. They should be given the chance to come back later. And in a world where we are living longer, in a faster changing environment, the importance of mature students and distance learning will surely grow. The internet and open access literature will surely have an impact on education. And frankly, I think there's not going to be much future for the kind of university like some of the mainland Europe, which does nothing beyond offering mediocre lectures to large audiences with no feedback. There's no future for that at all. That can be easily replaced by the internet. One should surely, incidentally, welcome in the UK more grouping and clustering of universities, in particular so as to provide better graduate education. But that should not reduce the opportunities for an academic in any university to pursue excellent research and scholarship and pursue the uh, research, teaching and reflective inquiry, which ever since the Robbins report had been the job of the university teacher. Well, as I said, we shouldn't jeopardise something which the UK is very good at, and which is a real uh, benefit to this country uh, in the interest of these short-term financial savings. In the context of total cuts amounting to 83 billion per annum, the bailout of the banks that cost 117 billion, it doesn't seem prudent or necessary to squeeze universities in the drastic and sudden way that's now happening. 
And I think we should therefore proclaim more broadly the role of the art and humanities in themselves beyond what can be measured in economic terms. I'm actually a techno-optimist. There seems no scientific impediment to achieving a sustainable world before 2050 where gross deprivations no longer exist. Indeed, even proper application of present-day scientific knowledge would be enough to secure this. But it's the politics and the sociology that pose the deepest concerns. Can the, the resurgence of fundamentalism be stemmed? Will it erode Enlightenment values unduly? Will richer countries recognise it's in their self-interest for the developing world to prosper too? Can nations sustain effective and non-repressive governance in the face of threats from dissident groups with high-tech expertise? And can our institutions prioritise projects that are long-term compared to the electoral cycle? All these are very important issues. And benign outcomes will surely be more likely if we can preserve and extend the best elements of our universities as long-existing institutions for education, learning and research and centres for disinterested expertise across the whole world of learning. Finally, just one perhaps slightly frivolous comment if the humanities really do have to play the impact game. Two of the most valuable pieces of intellectual property to come from English academia didn't come from scientists or engineers, but from professors of Renaissance literature and Anglo-Saxon. I refer, of course, to C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, whose works now, decades later, earn billions for the so-called creative industries. Well, these two distinguished scholars, both in style and attitude, archetype old-style Oxford dons, would feel disaffected aliens in today's world of ref, line management, and yordid culture. <coughs> Their values were the traditional ones, commitment to an institution, and to scholarship and learning for their own sake. And I think those values should surely stay at the core of our higher education and not become a lost cause. Thank you. Thank you very much, Richard Smith. Good, well, thank you very much. I mean, my immediate reaction to this is that it's self-evident that the humanities are valuable. Why should we need to argue that the humanities are valuable? But I suppose the sad state of affairs is that we do, and particularly because of the Brown Report. Um, and I think the really crucial thing about the Brown Report is it, it has effectively said that higher education is no longer a public good. It shouldn't be funded by the state. It's left to individuals. And I would recommend to you Stefan Collini's article about this in the London Review of Books, where he says the Brown Report displays no real interest in universities as places of education. They are conceived of simply as engines of economic prosperity and as agencies for equipping future employees to earn higher salaries. So I think we have to defend the humanities. And I want to do that on behalf of medicine, because I think medicine desperately needs the humanities in a very kind of practical way. I mean, every country in the developing world is launched into what I would describe as an unwinnable battle against death, pain, and sickness. The US spends 16% of its GDP on health. Of course, it's not on health. It's mostly on 
treating sickness and disease. The UK spends 9%. This is the only bit of the economy that has been protected. In fact, David Cameron has gone to, you know, is now going back to revise his figures in order to uh, defend himself against the criticism that there is no real increase in expenditure on the NHS. But I think a lot of this is very misconceived. I'm not alone in feeling this. I think most doctors feel that medicine, in some sense, is losing its way. I often use a quote from a friend of mine, uh, Ian Morrison, who was the president of the Institute for the Future, rather extraordinary thing to be, and he said, in Glasgow, where I was born, death was imminent. In Canada, where I trained, we thought of it as inevitable. In California, where I live now, we think of it as optional. <laughs> and actually, although that's a silly quote, there's a deep truth there, I think, because the world is headed in the California direction, not in the Glasgow direction. And as Atul Gawande, who might be known to some of you, who I think you might argue is the US's most influential doctor, and he's an influential doctor, he's a surgeon in Boston, not because of his surgery or because of his research, but because he's a brilliant writer, and he writes the most wonderful articles in the New York Review of Books, and I would recommend to you to read his article on dying and how death comes about in America, which was published, I think, in a June issue. It's a very powerful, very moving article that gives you a very strong impression that things are very wrong. He talks about intensive care units in the, unit in the US are warehouses of the dying. And there have been two recent reports in Britain that talk about how we die here. And we die very badly. We die mostly in hospital in undignified circumstances. And more and more of life's processes and difficulties, birth, death, sexuality, ageing, unhappiness, tiredness, loneliness, are being medicalised. But medicine can't begin to solve these problems. People become patients, stigma proliferates, large sums are spent, the treatments are often poisonous and disfiguring. We also have lots of evidence that the experience of people in hospitals in Britain is really very grim. Uh, and Jonathan Miller, actually, who will be known to lots of you, you know, originally a doctor, now a, a wonderful director and writer, points out how somehow in medicine the technical has replaced the human, I think to the loss of all of us. So we desperately need the help of the humanities. And I want to begin with death, because, you know, death is, I, well in fact as, as, as Todd May, an American philosopher, says death is tragic, arbitrary and meaningless, but at the same time opens up to us the fullness of life that would not exist without it. That it can negate every other element of our lives, including love and wisdom, is what makes it the most important fact about us. But how can we think creatively about death, which is, I would argue too, the most important thing that's going to happen to us? Where can we turn? Well, if you go to medical textbooks, they'll tell you what you're going to die of, they'll tell you the age at which people die, but really say very, very little about death and dying. So where can you turn? Well, I suppose the first place I would recommend anyone who wants to think more about this to turn is to Montaigne. I think Montaigne's essay to philosophize is to learn how to die is the most wonderful thing that, I mean, I studied medicine 30 years ago that I've ever read relevant to health and healthcare. And of course, what, much of what he writes is built on Seneca and Marcus Aurelius. You might want to read Jose Saramago, the Nobel, Portuguese Nobel Prize winner, his novel Death at Intervals, where he describes death going on strike, which is a terrible thing. We don't want that to happen, I can assure you. And he quotes at the beginning of his book Wittgenstein, 
saying, if you were to think more deeply about death, then it would be truly strange if in doing so you did not encounter new images, new linguistic fields. And I would say perhaps the second thing that I've read in all my 30 years in medicine that has been hugely important to me was Ivan Illich, kind of a priest, a philosopher. His book, he, he was a critic of industrial society, but his book, Medical Nemesis, was hugely influential for me. It begins with the line, modern medicine is the major threat to health in the world today, which might sound like a ludicrous idea. And it, certainly when he wrote it in the 70s, it seemed especially ludicrous. But slowly but surely, everything he wrote has become more and more true. And another place, I think, to, to think very creatively about death and dying is to read Julian Barnes' book, Nothing to be Frightened of. I would recommend that to you. It's a, it's a wonderful book. So these, these uh, people who are in the humanities, I think, have deep and meaningful things to say about death, whereas medicine, sadly, largely doesn't. And then, actually, there are also the technical aspects, in the sense, you know, the great debate we're having around assisted dying. I mean, clearly, that can't be left to doctors. Philosophers, I think, have more to offer than anybody else in that kind of debate. So that's death. But what about health? Surely that's something that uh, we could know more about. But I think, actually, if you open a medical textbook, there are some medical textbooks that are 5,000 pages long, you'll hardly see anything on health at all. You'll see thousands and thousands of diseases, but almost nothing about health. And yet, somehow, we increasingly feel we should be talking about health. We shouldn't just be talking about sickness. And when you, I mean, the reality of how doctors define uh, health is this the absence of disease. You know, I can't detect anything wrong with you, therefore you must be healthy. And actually, as we get ever better at defining your genes and your blood lipids, slowly but surely, nobody is healthy. Everybody is unhealthy. And then against that, the WHO, the World Health Organization, defines health as complete physical, psychological, and social well-being, which you reflect on it for a moment, is ludicrous. As one Irish epidemiologist said, well, the only time we ever reach that is at the moment of mutual orgasm. <laughs> so, so, so what is health? I mean, we, just, we have the greatest difficulty defining health. And it does, it seems to me, relate in some quite close way to the well-lived or the well-examined life. And we absolutely need people in the humanities to help us think about this. And it does seem to me as well that actually poetry might be one of the things that have the answer. So when I try and think about what is health, which I've spent a lot of time doing rather fruitlessly, I must confess, then I think reading Louis McNeese's poem Snow or Kafafi's Ithaca or Tennyson's Ulysses, I was tempted to read some of them but I'm not going to, those for me have something rather profound to say about what health is. It is certainly much more than the absence of disease. I think, too, and I'm changing tack here slightly, that the humanity can help us with what I think of as our evolutionary flaws. I knew that Martin Rees was going to be here, and he has a wonderful quote when he was asked to talk about, tell us something surprising about science. And he says, well, one of the things we should realize is that the creatures that watch the end of our planet, which I think is about five billion years ago, will be as different from us as we are from amoeba. You know, evolution hasn't stopped, whereas I think there's a bit of a tendency for some of us to think you know, we are the crowning achievement of uh, evolution, but it's very clear to me and probably to most of you that we're absolutely not. And I think our two big evolutionary flaws, we've got lots of them, that are going to destroy us, our selfishness 
and lack of imagination. And of course, they have an upside. I mean, Eliot famously said, humankind cannot bear much reality. I mean, I think if suddenly we were to be aware of all the grief and unhappiness in the world, it could completely overwhelm us. So it's rather good in a sense that we are selfish and we do lack imagination. But I think it stops us responding adequately, for example, to climate change. Somehow we can't quite imagine how awful it could easily be. Uh, and I think because of our selfish nature, we think, well, I'll leave other people to make a change and I'll go on in much the same old way. But who, who is it that can help us get through these problems? Then I would suggest, I mean, I don't know how many of you have read Cormac McCarthy's book, The Road, which has now been made into a Hollywood film. But I think that is, that is something that can really help us think about the world we are potentially creating. And George Monbiot, who you know, is one of our leading uh, commentators on climate change, describes that as the best book he's ever read on climate change. Or read Ovid's Metamorphoses. I think the way he describes in there how we when we begin to live out of balance with nature, we can create the most awful things. And I think we have to think of other ways to live. And I don't think medicine is going to do that for us, and I'm not sure that science is either, but I think the humanities can help us find different ways to live. And I'm reading at the moment Juliet Shaw, a, a Boston economist, writing about... You know, a new economy, a different way of doing things. And she argues we cannot go on growing our economies in the way we have because we're consuming the good things in the planet. We need to find other ways to live. And I think the humanities can help with all of these. So one is we should reallocate our time away from paid work, move more to self-provision, grow or make things ourselves. The humanities can help us with that. We should adopt true materialism, which means recognising the material consequences of everything we do, which we absolutely don't at the moment, although many of us are materialist. And we should invest in ourselves and our communities. So I think the kind of short-sighted economic view that is implied in the Brown Report could be very, very wrong. Before I finish, I've also been reading James Vernon's piece. He's a professor of history at UC Berkeley, but he's from Britain originally. He trained in Manchester. And he's written a rather powerful piece about the end of the public university in England. And towards the end of that piece, he's making the case for the humanities. And he's just got some quotes here which I really like. The humanities, he says, offers us the chance to think otherwise. And I think that's what we need to do a lot. And I think, particularly, I would say, a lot of medical students in this country, as you're probably aware, people go to medical school at 18. They've often a very limited experience of the world. In the US, they do their liberal arts degree first. And I think there's a lot of uh, medical students who could respond very well to having a broader exposure to the humanities. And in fact, that is happening. There's a growth in medicine and humanities teaching and departments. And Vernon also says the humanities speak to different systems of value, of imagination, beauty, laughter and wonder, which I think is very important. Economic utility is not the measure of who we are and who we want to become. And I'd like to end with a quote from Kennedy, which is something that really inspires me. And he says, when power leads men toward arrogance, poetry reminds him of his limitations. When power narrows the areas of man's concern, poetry reminds him of the richness and diversity of his experience. When power corrupts, poetry cleanses. 
For art establishes the basic human truths which must serve as the touchstones of our judgment. The artist, faithful to his personal vision of reality, becomes the last champion of the individual mind and sensibility against an intrusive society and an offensive state. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor James Lederman. Um, thank you. I, I hardly endorse the attack on instrumentalism about uh, the arts and humanities. And uh, obviously, I think it's, it's, it's a desperate situation that we are in the business of trying to articulate why people should care about literature and ideas and so on. However, that is the situation we're in. And so I thought I would um, address... Their, uh, address the point from, from their perspective. So, so rather than um, jumping up and down and, and quoting Wilde and saying, uh, these people know the price of everything and the value of nothing, and, and thereby implying that we might be falling into the opposite trap of knowing the value of everything and the price of nothing, which is the, the sentimentalist uh, angle, I would like to argue that, in fact, the people who are uh, undermining the, the arts and humanities know neither the price nor the value of, uh, of, of their study. So my, I, I, I was given 10 minutes. I think everyone's gone slightly over. I might do as well. But I thought 10 minutes, 10 points. And my first point is we are cheap. That is to say, uh, in, in public policy terms, the, the, the money that's spent on research in the arts and humanities is kind of noise in the system. So I know, I know, you know speak from, from personal example, uh, my own department is a, a fairly highly rated, one of, one of the better philosophy departments in the, in the country. There, there are a number of good departments, but we're one of them. What's the total amount of money we get per year from the government for our research? Well, it's of the order of £450,000. Now, that's for um, 13... Uh, full-time academics, includes um, several professors, a number of whom are internationally eminent, who write books that sell copies all over the world, that are used as textbooks and courses all over the world. That includes the research culture, that includes also postdocs, people who secure funding from the European Union to come and study with us, as well as all our postgraduates. Uh, who, who are only there because of our research culture, lots of whom pay fees, lots of whom come from abroad, and so on, and the research-led teaching that our students get. All of that for £450,000. Now, we're supposed to be living in something like the, you know, the excess of the public sector. And I would like to know what other area of professional activity could deliver what we deliver for such a paltry amount of money. How far would we get if we went down into the City of London to talk to some management consultants and got them, what would they produce for us for £450,000? What would we get from lawyers or uh, you know, other professionals for, for this amount of money? Uh, very little, I think, in comparison. Now, the second point I want to make is that um, even if what you value about the arts and humanities is what they produce for society. And to some extent, uh, my fellow uh, panellists have been emphasising the instrumental value of the arts and humanities, uh, value in, in, in inculcating appropriate values to inform good citizenship, or its value for prolonging life and enhancing quality of life and making us happy. So to some, some extent, we're talking about the instrumental value of the arts and humanities. It seems to me that what's well, completely crazy is to suggest that those who are uh, engaging in the arts and humanities should make the instrumental value of the arts and humanities their proximate goal. And that is what's suggested. 
So more and more we're told what you should be thinking about when you embark upon research is what it's going to produce for the wider community, the, the, the cash value of that research. Now, imagine any other sphere of life where, where this was how, how things were done. Imagine a football manager at half-time saying, right, lads, go out there and add value for our shareholders. Right? That's, it may be that all the shareholders care about is, is the value of their shares, but that's not the way to get people to, to actually create value for them. Likewise, imagine the patron of the arts who is prepared to give some money to an artist under the condition that the artists try their hardest to paint expensive pictures. This is, this is not how you should go about things. Good art comes from pursuing the ideals internal to the activity. Even if you only value art for what it is then worth to you, it's a complete error. It's not just, as it says, that joke, you know, have they, have they done something wrong? No, it's worse than that, they've done something stupid. I mean, it seems to me that that is what's going on with this uh, treasury-driven attitude towards uh, re making researchers focus on, what they, on the instrumental value of what they produce. Even if you only value it for its instrumental value, it is not appropriate to make the proximate goal of the activity the instrumental value. Okay, now, uh, that was, so that was point two. Point three is that um, we uh, are very strong as a country in the arts and humanities. In philosophy... Uh, we have a, a, a great tradition. I was reminded when Martha quoted the Declaration of Independence that um, if we want to talk about the impact of philosophy, we can think of John Locke's treatise on government, which more or less you know, get carried over into the Declaration of Independence. Um, the words Martha quoted are sometimes called the most quoted words in the, human lang in the English language. And um, that's a byproduct of abstract philosophical inquiry by Locke. We have a great, great, many other great philosophers in our history who have all contributed immeasurably to uh, things way beyond philosophy. So, for example, if I like to um, be um, touch every base. So the Englishman, the Irishman, the Scotsman, and the Welshman. I've done Locke. Barclay's critique of the calculus was a very, very important for the foundations of mathematics in the 19th century. Hume founded associationist psychology. Uh, and, and greatly influenced Einstein, uh, Russell. Well, you know, people joke. You know, Russell spends hundreds of pages with Whitehead proving that one equals one. But his work on artificial languages is the foundation for our modern understanding of computer science. So, what could possibly have more impact than that? So, that that great tradition of strength and excellence in philosophy continues now. Many of the world's greatest philosophers. Uh, in Britain, from Britain, past through Britain, we are very much on the map. We are thought of as a leading country in this area. Now, I'm uh, just not aware of that many areas in which Britain can be said to truly ex excel on the world stage. And I find it, therefore, completely perverse and bizarre that government would seek to undermine uh, this area of excellence. And I should add that this attack on the arts and humanities very much antedates the current government. We, we must remember that the Labour government withdrew funding for second degrees, that, that badly damaged arts and humanities departments and continuing education departments, and they also uh, instigated the impact agenda and, and refused to uh, properly stand up to the Treasury and explain why the funding that was given was worthwhile, and um, they also commissioned the Brown Report, we mustn't forget that as well. 
Okay, so, so I think, you know, we have great strength in uh, recruitment of postgraduates. They pay fees, they, they, they come and, their, their families come and visit them, they, they engage in economic activity when they're here. There's publishing that's centred around Britain because of the excellence of our academic sector. Uh, overseas academics come and visit us. All of this generates economic activity. All of this is jeopardised by the uh, current, uh, the, the current um, focus on the short-term value of, of what we do. Now, if you, if you want to see evidence of how ridiculous things have become, then you only have to go to a presentation by the Arts and Humanities Research Council about their latest emerging themes and connected communities. It's quite extraordinary what goes on now. I, I, I work in philosophy of science. I go along to one of these meetings. They're starting to talking about, basically they seem to think that, oh, we've got an economic crisis. Could you Arts and Humanities people reinvigorate the economy for us, please? <laughs> it, it's, it's just quite amazing. We're not responsible for it. We didn't do anything. Right, we, we, we just you know, increased our productivity while you doubled the number of students and really worked hard to not let the quality of what we do be downgraded. And now you've suddenly got an economic crisis and we're the ones who are getting more of a funding cut than any other part of the public sector. Completely disproportionate funding cut on us. It's not our fault. We're actually quite good. We're also quite cheap. And um, I've now learned that my job as a philosopher of science is to help contribute to community cohesion. Um, uh, we were told um, the arts humanities can play a great role in translating cultures, and this could be really important for you know. And then they start banging on about extremism and how important it is that cultures understand each other and stuff. At which point I said, "Yeah, that's really interesting." But Bristol City Council just completely closed its program to teach English to Somali immigrants. What about that? Why are you telling me that I have to translate cultures and engage in community cohesion, and you just cut off funding? for teaching the mothers of Somali kids who are in Britain English. And every penny that you spend teaching them English increases their educational chances, their employment chances, that reduces their chances of ending up in the criminal justice system and everything else. But no, it falls upon us to redress these problems. It's absolutely, absolutely crazy. Now, I, I, I completely endorse what Lord Rees said about the impact agenda. I, I, I was um, reminded when he was talking of G.H. Uh, Hardy, who I think was a fellow of Trinity, uh, Hardy famously, not famously, Hardy wrote a famous book called uh, Mathematician's Apology. In there he proudly boasts, I've never done anything useful in my life, he says. <laughs> Immediately um, after pointing out that he'd never done anything useful in his life, he cites two other areas in which Cambridge is very strong at the time, quantum mechanics and relativity theory, and says, obviously these things will never be of any use either. <laughs> um, so um, it's absurd to think, I would notice that uh, Martin used the word picking winners. That's exactly what they're doing. It's like the people in the Treasury think, um, you know, you've got all those horses running in Chepstow at 3 o'clock. Why don't you just work out which one's going to win and just run that one? It'd be much more efficient. <laughs> okay. okay, first of all, you can't pick winners. Secondly, has it ever occurred to you that the one that runs fastest might only do so because all the other ones that are running as well? And that is the nature of academic life. We, uh, as Don Brabham points out, uh, Mount Everest rises from a plateau that's itself very far above sea level, right? We only, we like to focus on the Nobel Prize winners and the great, the, the people who make great achievements. But they are part of a culture, they're part of a scientific culture, they have colleagues that they talk to over coffee. Those people's contribution is important and they may not be uh, headline grabbers or people who, whose name goes on the paper, but that you, you can't just get rid of everyone in the culture apart from those who make the great achievements. If you, if you undermine the rest of the culture, you'll undermine the work of the people who are most preeminent in it. In that sense, we're all connected, and uh, 
you know, this impact agenda basically just encourages hype, um, mediocrity. It encourages us to pursue the things that we know now are valuable. Someone pointed out if you'd had the impact agenda in uh, 1900, you would have been investing everything in animal husbandry so, because the whole economy was based on horsepower. Right? Well, that then suddenly changed. So we don't know how things are going to change. So that's why we shouldn't overly invest in impact. Um, there's this idea that all academics now should be kind of all singing, all dancing, public engagement, knowledge, knowledge transfer specialists. I read an article uh, where Alan Thorpe uh, from, from RCUK was, was, was um, it's quite extraordinary, boasting uh, about how he, you know, his impact agenda had, had, had um, borne fruit of the following kind, that, that there was a researcher in Wales who was communicating the results of his research through stand-up comedy. And uh, <laughs> well, the implication was that that's what we're all supposed to be doing. And um, no, I just do not understand this at all. There are lots of professional mediators between academ academia and the rest of society. There are journalists. Um, there are uh, some academics who, who, who partly specialise in publicising what they do. Why should every scientist and every academic be uh, engaged in in public engagement, I don't see why. I mean, some of us should be fine, but why all of us? Why must all impact be direct? It's like they don't have an idea of culture. You don't understand, you know, things seep into the culture and it ends up having an influence even if you can't follow directly how it goes. Uh, I, I would have thought this was just obvious. Uh, I don't know, I, I haven't had a, um, a television for, for, for 12 years or any idea about what goes on in public culture, but I still know what the X factor is. Now, <laughs> that's because there's a, there's a culture. Things seep into it and spread out. And the same happens even with the uh, more esoteric and, and highfalutin stuff that goes on in universities. And of course, we impact on society via teaching our students and uh, many of them become teachers or, or, or retain an interest in academic subjects and, and carry on talking and thinking about it for the rest of their lives. Uh, what we're doing in, in academia at the moment is creating precisely the wrong incentives and encouraging the wrong kind of values in academics. We're encouraging them to be focused on outcomes and products, not on scholarship, not on... Uh, a, 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 the idea of a, an academic is kind of obsessed with the details of some small part of their area seems rather, rather outmodish and uh, uh, inappropriate. And I, I, I take it that that's what universities should be full of, right? People who are rather more interested in mollusks than other people think is normal. Right? <laughs> you, you want there to be people like that in university. That's the idea. Now, you don't need loads of them. You just need some. You know, we don't, I don't think you can say we're, we're overflowing um, with, with academics. We, we, we need some people who are, uh, have this interest in highly recondite esoteric matters uh, it may just turn out that, that, that it is of some use someday, but, but, but what is definitely of use is, is the, the, the general culture of, of thinking about things and, and paying attention to detail, and that's what academic work um, exemplifies. Now, um, the other big threat, I think, we've touched upon it already in, in academic life, is managerialism. Uh, universities are full of now of, of, of embarrassing, shameful, and vulgar blather management nonsense, I, I was at a meeting not that long ago. Uh, first time I came across someone was giving a talk about something and they uh, blah, 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 and we don't ne yet know what the quantum is. I thought, oh, hold on, I thought... <laughs> no, actually, quantum is now the word that managerial types use for amount. <laughs> it's direct, you know, look at the usage, it's completely synonymous. 
just makes it sound like they're talking about something um, really clever and interesting. And of course, it's a classic technique for the exclusion of the outsider to adopt a specialised jargon. And academics can be guilty of that, but often our jargon, um, like the jargon of plumbers and mechanics and every, everyone who has a specialist knowledge of something, our jargon exists for a reason, because we want to differentiate carefully among um, precise concepts. Whereas what, what goes on now is we, we, we have strategies, we have processes, we have uh, research themes. You know, what's your research theme? And you know, Former Dean of Arts at the University of Bristol, when I was telling him about this, said, oh, why don't we have a theme? Uh, why don't we call it ideas? But <laughs> that hasn't quite got the right ring to it. Um, we have to have mission statements now. Um, the mission statement of the Department of Philosophy at the University of Bristol, in case you're interested, is analysing concepts in the Bristol and Avon area. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, I finally turn to um, the, the, the critical role. Um, I, another quote from Hardy. Um, I was thinking when uh, Martin Rees said that scientists are their own critics. Hardy says uh, in the Mathematician's Apology, um, there is no contempt uh, more profound nor more justified than that of those who do for those who criticise. Um, so um, I, I felt rather bad when I read that because I was talking about me. Um, now, but, but, but I think that while we focus on the positive role of academics, um, and I think this was touched upon at the end of, of Richard's comments, that, that there's a purely negative role that academics have, which is just to kind of sit in the academy and, and criticise and point out how this is, a, this is a rerun of the debate that happened 100 years ago. Or in, fact, in fact, this debate that we're having now, um, someone was sent round a speech by a um, vice-chancellor of the University of Sydney about the corporatisation of universities from the 1930s. So, you know, there's nothing new under the sun in, some, in many cases. And, uh, Academics can remind people of the history of these debates, of, of, the, of the pitfalls and errors which have been fallen in, into before. But they, academics also have a role just, just being critical of politicians, of business leaders, of the rich and the powerful and so on. And so I, I will finally end, um, I, you know, I, I apologise for ending slightly portentously, but I, I think one must ask when we talk about the devaluing of the arts and humanities, key bono, right, who, who benefits from this? If you're in any doubt about the importance of intellectuals to society and about the importance of ideas, then just ask yourself, why is it that tyrants and totalitarian regimes go straight after intellectuals, always? They don't say, oh, don't worry about them, they're just in their ivory towers, they don't have any impact on anything. No, they realise that ideas are more powerful than anything else. So uh, that's all I have to say. Thanks very much. Thank you very much <coughs> for very high-powered contributions. Um, we're going to open up to the audience in a moment, but we, we now get to the bit where, in classic academic tradition, you rip apart um, your colleagues' views <laughs> and uh, opinions. So um, who would like to rip first? <laughs> Go on, Richard. Well, I mean, it seems to me we're all essentially singing the same song, so it's a little hard to rip each other apart. But I suppose... You see, I don't think you are. Well, it, we might well, well, I, well, I, suppose, I mean, I, I think yeah. I... Well, what I was going to say is I, I was conscious that I was doing, I think, what you were criticising, that I was saying, you know, there has to be a use for the humanities. It must help us in medicine. 
And, but I did try to start by saying, I, I, to me, it's kind of self-evident that to think about things critically and to have ideas and to gather details and to understand the past, it seems to me almost entirely unnecessary to have to defend that. It's self-evidently a good thing. And I suppose I, I am perhaps falling into the trap you're criticising, but I'm trying to justify it because it's going to help medicine in some way, as if somehow medicine is automatically of good. Therefore, if we can show that the humanities help medicine, things there'll be more reason for funding it. And it does seem a shame, actually, that I have to argue like that. But I do absolutely believe what I was saying. But I actually don't think that you were making a, a purely instrumental argument, and I don't think that I was either. That is, I think the illumination about death and about health that you were talking about, you recommended it as something that was valuable in its own right as a part of a medical activity. And I think that what I was saying was that this uh, ability to criticize arguments and to exchange arguments with others is a constituent part of a viable democracy, not a means to something. In other words, if you wanted to define democracy, that would appear inside that definition, at least the one that I would favor. And so too would the use of the imagination and the uh, adequate mastery of history and, and uh, fact. So I don't think my argument's in instrumental. I, I do think that it's incomplete. That is to say, I deliberately leave aside many other purposes that the humanities have that do illuminate human life. I, I focus only on one that uh, is of particular I interest to me because I think it's a goal that's shared by many people who don't yet appreciate the humanities. Uh, but I do think that in the process, I am talking about ends proper to the activity of philosophy. I mean, what, 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 the clarification of arguments, the leading of the examined life, what, what could be more at the heart of the practice of philosophy than, than, than that? Uh, of course, I'm also talking about teaching. And I think we ought to get clear that teaching and research are two separate components of a single activity. I, I do think that you don't get good teaching of the sort that I favor without support for research, because the, the old uh, canard that I hear again and again in the US that people could teach without doing this abstruse research, I, I just don't see that. What I see is that when people are not supported in their research and when they're not alive and learning something new that fascinates them, however abstruse, they're dead wood, and they don't contribute to the classroom, with very rare exceptions. So, I, but, but I do think that there's no reason why their research has to be about democratic public culture. The people who teach Plato's dialogues in our core curriculum are doing all kinds of things. They might be writing about Hegel, they might be writing about philosophy of science, and they ought to be supported in doing that. Martin, can I just say Martin, because the point, um, I mean, I cover the arts, and I see these little fringe theaters who are having to fill in forms now proving that their plays have stopped the war in Afghanistan or have, um, or have cured illiteracy in their area. And is, James is stressing, I mean, is it now a trap that everyone falls into, that they, they are forced to justify what they do, whereas it's impossible to just say, we put on these plays because we think they're good and we think they're interesting? It is hard. I mean, I think James's point was so important that we should not focus on the, some proximate goal which is not the real one. Um, and I can give one example how this happens because I was on a research council uh, when they were planning the, uh, uh, the LHC in Geneva. And uh, um, you know, it's a lot of money, obviously. Um, but the argument was given that uh, um, some British company would get a contract to build the magnets. And that made it a good thing. But it seemed to me, realistically, um, if there's no point in this machine at all, 
then it's second order pointlessness to build the, mach- the uh, magnets that go with it. So it seems to be an inversion of the argument to say, to say that it, uh, um, if you think the thing is useless, it's nonetheless a good thing to build parts of it. You know? uh, so that's uh, one way around. Um, uh, to um, perhaps lower the tone a bit, um, uh, um, Richard made this um, point about the California attitude about death being optional. Um, I was once interviewed by... Uh, uh, a body called the Society for the Abolition of Involuntary Death. And they're, um, they're, they're the group that freezes cryogenics, yeah. uh, uh, and the cut price, they just freeze your head. But the whole thing, the body. Um, and um, uh, I upset them very much because I, I said I'd rather end my days in an English churchyard than a Californian refrigerator. <laughs> <laughs> and they thought I was a real uh, old conservative. <laughs> And on this question, we'll open up in a moment, but um, this question of if we accept there is a crisis, what, sh- what should practically be done or can be done about it? Richard, are you seeing... Well, I, would, start I, off I mean, I think, I think I was saying to MM, I think this is a good start to have you know, people who are not from the arts and humanities arguing their case, because otherwise it's going to sound like special pleading. And I was interested in what Martha said about the, you know, the rich folks in America who remember... You know, with fondly their time in their liberal arts colleges. I mean, as I was reading a piece today that, that turns the argument around, and ima- it's, a, it's a blog in the Guardian, and imagines actually that all the funding was going to the arts and humanities, and the scientists were having to kind of justify why they should get money. And one of the things it points out is that actually, you know, I mean, most of the people in the, our politicians actually are educated in the arts and humanities. They're not educated in science. So there's something slightly odd about these people becoming, you know, so obsessed with the short-term economic return that maybe we can reinvigorate, as you seem to do rather successfully, their love of philosophy and literature. Yeah, but they're politicians, and they have to stand for election in a short time and say, here's what I've delivered. And I think the trouble is their incentives are the wrong incentives. It's very difficult to stand in front of a frightened, uh, crisis-ridden electorate and say, I've laid the groundwork for the future development of a healthy democracy many years hence. So, so I think it is a problem, general problem about politicians that they have all the wrong incentives. I, I have to say that this is, um, here's a, a, a story about that, that I was at William and Mary College in Virginia, which is a liberal arts college of the kind I'm talking about, but it also happens to be technically part of the state university system because it goes way back to the founding of the University of Virginia system. And uh, <laughs> So I gave a talk on the sort of thing that you've heard me say, and uh, that was for the, the whole student body. And then the next day, the governor of Virginia came in, and he came in as if parachuted down uh, into a place with which he was completely unfamiliar. He didn't even realize that this was a liberal arts college. He got up there, started talking about the very good that there are colleges that produce profit for industry and create jobs for the state of Virginia. And the students all burst out laughing. And then he looked very puzzled about why, why should they be laughing? I'm just reading the speech that my speechwriters wrote for me. But I, I think the people who are having this kind of education you know, see that there's something in it that, that goes way beyond that. So, so what can, 
One thing I think we have to do is do much more in sacrificing our own free time to do workshops for the general public, to get them involved in what we do, and to correct misunderstandings about what we do. Because I think people do find it joyful and wonderful to study the humanities, but they have a lot of misconceptions in the US particularly, and you could see this in the uh, TLS discussion of my book, uh, the misconception that all humanities teaching is a purveying of abstruse postmodernist jargon and ideological <laughs> left-wing ideas and so on. And I, I do think that's a widespread set of misconceptions, so why not uh, have a seminar on Plato and t get them involved in the kind of thing that we love doing and uh, teaching? Uh, and I think this could be done very effectively Adult continuing education in the U.S. has an increasing demand for the humanities, and that's one thing that we do know, is that people of a certain age feel a thirst for this kind of uh, enrichment of experience, so then we ought to provide it. But it struck me that there's been a big philosophical, philosophical with a small p shift in the British educational system, because I, I mean, probably a lot of parents here, and I've had three children go through the educational system, and it just seems standard now that when they mention the, the GCSE or A-levels they want to do, the schools say to them, but what's the job at the end of that? Mm -hmm. Which I never remember happening. I mean, I, I liked English and I was told to do English, or encouraged to, and I did. But that, it, that really worries me, and I, a lot of parents say this, but that has happened, I think, hasn't it, in education? Yeah, and I think um, I mean, one of the things that frightens me is that people will adopt an irrational reaction to the perceived high cost of studying the arts and humanities. So um, I, neither of my parents went to university. Uh, that I didn't come from a family that knew about university. When I was going to university, it was to study pure mathematics. And my mother said to me, look, and she really tried to persuade me, don't study pure mathematics. You need to think about a job. Uh, you know, if you come from a working class background, as she did, then that material security is paramount in your mind. And all you can think about is your children's material. You know, you want them to be safe and, and have a, 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 a living. And so she said to me, be, do accountancy if you like maths, or be an actuary. Now, anyone who knows anything about elite education knows that if you want to go to the top of accountancy, or the top of being an actuary, or the top of some financial services, you do a, a pure, highly academic mathematics degree is a much better start than doing a vocational course in accountancy. And so many of my colleagues who did pure maths went off to jobs in finance and earned vast amounts of, of money almost immediately, much more than they would had they done a vocational course. But the worry is that people who don't understand the value of higher education because they don't particularly have personal experience of it will tell their ch will not realize that it's actually a good investment for their children to study philosophy or English or history or whatever and so they will push them into courses which actually have less instrumental value uh, and so um, you know I, I, I think I think it's, it's extremely worrying but I think it's unfortunate that 18-year-olds have to make that choice. I mean, back to what you said, I, I don't think 18-year-olds uh, can foresee their future in a very prudent way. And so the fact that they have to choose between philosophy and accountancy is, I think, quite unfortunate. I mean, the structure where they'll do a major subject, but they'll choose it after two years of doing some general subject seems to me to make more sense in terms of the human maturing, um, the, the maturation of, of typical uh, adolescent human beings. And Martin, when you raised that, you said that all, all degrees should be more, should be wider. Yes. Well, I, mean, I think the problem here starts at the age of 
the problem starts at the age of 16, of course, with the specialized six forms, and we ought to broaden that, and, uh, uh, and that is even worse than specialized at 18. It also, incidentally, has another problem, which is that because uh, many of the uh, schools people go to at age 16 uh, have rather poor teaching in some subjects, uh, particularly in science subjects, that forecloses the option for uh, some 18-year-olds of going to a good university, because they didn't come to a good sixth form. So I think there's an overwhelming case for allowing people to keep options open. And this is just the kind of restructuring uh, which I think we need um, for the elite universities, and even more so for the kind of university where people might drop out after two years um, or might uh, uh, go for part-time courses in midlife. I think we need to diversify. But my main concern is I don't think this sort of sudden um, forced readjustment under financial pressure is going to lead to that sort of readjustment which needs proper thought. And it needs a kind of committee uh, to oversee it which has a different composition than the Brown Report. Because the Brown Report uh, contained people from a rather sort of managerial background who were maybe okay to uh, work out the details of a loan scheme, but they weren't the kind of people <laughs> on whom the future of the UK higher education system, precious as it is, should depend. Richard was waiting in the I just I, I wanted to say, I think this is in some ways a particular problem in medicine. Of course, a medical degree takes you five years, and then you have to go on for another five years to be a neurosurgeon. But if you start at 18, you end up with a very, very narrow view of the world because classically you've done biology and chemistry and mathematics for A-level. From a very early age, you've adopted this very, you know, you've been forced to, in order to do all the things you have to do, have this very narrow view of the world. Mostly you come from a privileged background. So I think it's perhaps no wonder that we end up with doctors who lots of people find very unsympathetic, very unaware of the, the way they live and their kind of predicament. And, you know, somehow the whole model of medicine, which sort of, when I was at medical school, it's classically diagnose, treat, cure. I mean, there's almost none of that going on anymore. I mean, increasingly, healthcare is about frail, elderly people with multiple problems. And actually, there begins to be a whole debate within medicine that the sort of disease concept has actually outlived its usefulness. And we have diabetologists and people who focus on individual diseases and don't adequately think about whole people. And that is one of the major dissatisfactions that people have with healthcare. How exactly we solve that, because, I mean, you could say, well, I mean, actually, in the U.S., people do, of course, do a, a degree first before they go to medicine, yeah. and many of them would do a liberal arts degree. But, of course, if you're thinking in economic terms, this is going to kind of lengthen the course even more. Well, I've been quite impressed. I, one of my uh, sons has just gone to study medicine, and um, because of the way I am, for the year before he went, I was giving him Chekhov and Julian Barnesburg and all this stuff. <laughs> and he just um, he carefully left them in his room, and then he got there, and they they're making him read them. But uh, that's <laughs> but they do they seem to be doing more and more of that. Yeah, it's no, it's true. Perfect. It's true. There's a real and and, it, and I think it is a recognition of the problem I've just been describing that somehow medicine has become too technical, too inhuman. It feels you know there's a loss of dignity whatever exactly that means and that we, we, we've, we've, we've gone wrong in a way but the trouble is that you know that of course everybody responds to incentives and medical students have to get through their exams and you do a little bit of check off and you don't usually get examined in that and nobody discusses it terribly intelligently so it often doesn't work awfully well it, it can be window dressing rather than a real education I think so I just um, going back a bit uh, I just, just point of clarification first of all I didn't want to criticise my other 
uh, panellists for making an instrumental argument because I, I was kind of taking it that people we have to argue with are the cynics who won't accept that it's valuable for its own sake. So to some extent, for pragmatic reasons, we need to be able to make an instrumental argument. So I very much welcome your, your making them. Um, the other point I wanted to make was just about this business about politicians being under pressure and so on. M my understanding of things is that the impact agenda and all the pressure to show the value of arts and humanities funding and indeed science funding comes not at all from the public. There was no public outcry you know, that led to the creation of the impact agenda. It didn't figure on the political radar, the state of higher education. It's completely driven by people in the Treasury who are, are, there's a constituency in the, in the Treasury who say, um, if it was necessary to fund pure mathematics and physics, private industry would, would do it. Therefore, the state shouldn't do it. Now, they, if they think that about physics and mathematics, you can imagine what they think about the arts and humanities. Now, this isn't the majority of thinking in the Treasury, but these are, it's just an influential constituency. And it's, it's them and, who, who have led to this the impact agenda and the research councils trying to cha you know, changing what research is done to make it look like it has impact so that they can satisfy the treasury that they're giving value for money instead of making a proper intellectual defense of the of the value of what we do and so i i, I really i mean I've, I've been to so many meetings where people have gone on about um yeah, what about the working class taxpayers who are paying money for people to do the arts and humanities but in, in my experience um, mixing fairly widely i've never come across people um, from who've said, oh, university, what's the point in that? That's just a waste of money. Most people in British culture understand perfectly well the value of our universities and so on. And indeed, I think uh, if you poll British people and ask them what they most value about their country, uh, its culture is number two. And um, you can also just very quickly point What's out... What's number one, football or cricket? As in, I, I forget what number one is. <laughs> but I mean, it's, all, it's also... Um, it, so, so first of all, people greatly value um, their, their culture. And secondly, we have apparently the second, the fastest growing cultural economy in the world. Uh, does anyone really believe that this, the growth of our cultural economy... Uh, what the BBC was able to do, to do in terms of cultural products and so on over decades is independent of our intellectual culture and our universities and our arts and humanities, which is obviously the two are closely related. So again, you know, we do not understand why people are being so crass as to cut off the blood supply of this vital kind of uh, engine of growth. But if that's true, then I think you really need to rally this public and get them involved and get them. So all the more reason to do what I'm suggesting, bring them in, get them involved in, in workshops and informal debates and discussions so that they're connecting to this problem. Because it seems like what the, the, the situation you depict is one where people don't actually support what their own politicians are doing, but they're not protesting against it either. And that's a very, that's a situation that's chargeable with the right kind of attention. I, I, I should mention that I think the only country I'm aware of in which the humanities are actually advancing is South Korea, 
And the reason for that is that there has been, for a long time, a very strong public identification of being Korean with the humanities. Now, there are historical reasons for this, because under the Japanese occupation, study of Korean language, Korean literature, and Confucian philosophy were all illegal. And therefore, in illegal schools, Koreans were doing this and came over time to identify that with the self-assertion of themselves as Koreans, um, whereas the Japanese wanted to create a technical peon class to produce uh, purely instrumental work. Uh, so, you know, there is that unique history, but I think what you are saying about the British public uh, chimes in with that. If they, they do identify national pride with the humanities, why not get them more involved in this debate? You see, I can say something about that, but it, I think it's interesting <coughs> that I, there's a nervousness um, about people supporting this kind of stuff. I mean, something happened this week that um, Contemporary Music Group in Birmingham, they lost all their council grant. And the people connected with it, they were contacting newspapers, they were contacting the media, they were contacting financial supporters who all said, well, we can't make a fuss because everyone's suffering. Um, everyone's in trouble in this country. And it seems to me the government has been, coalition government has been very, very successful in projecting this argument, there is no money. Um, and therefore, by definition, the humanities become a luxury. And they've done that very, very efficiently, it seems to me. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the most extraordinary sophistry. So Vince Cable said the other day, we have to do this, we've got this terrible short-term funding problem. But of course, there will be no increased income from, fee, um, from fees for, until many years down the line. So it's actually going to cost money in the short term. So the idea that you have to do it desperately quickly because of a short-term funding problem is a complete canard, right? They're, until people start paying back the money, which could be five, six years' time, there'll actually be a, a shortfall of funding in. And, we, and it will cost. It will not save any money in the short term whatsoever. And, of course, we have had you know, the biggest demonstrations in this country for a long time in protest. And my impression is I don't hear many people saying those bloody students as they did a bit back in my day. I've been, I sense a tremendous support for the students. Do you not? Yeah, you see, the difference is in the arts that I know. You see, yeah. in the 70s, when there were much smaller cuts in the arts, um, there were actors and directors marching on Downing Street, and Sir Peter Hall yeah. was standing yeah. on a coffee table at the National saying, we won't take this. And you ask now the equivalent people in those positions, and they say, we've just got to take this because the country is suffering, and everyone is suffering, and we can't be standing up arguing for Shakespeare and Harrison Birtwistle and, um, because people won't take us seriously. And it seems there is, there's a loss of... Uh, yeah, no, I see that. that. But There's I mean, at the same time, the students are protesting, and it seems to me people are supporting them. Yeah. People aren't saying, oh, well, you're just arguing for your own special interests. They're claiming, yes, you know, you're, you're advancing a very important argument. Well, I mean, people clearly do care about universities, and certainly if they're going to have to pay more fees, they will care about the quality of those universities. Even though the league tables are very dubious and misleading, they look at the league tables, they like to think that the UK universities are good universities and they should be concerned that they won't stay that way unless they can attract good people to go into academia and they won't attract those good people unless they provide the conditions and research support, etc., to make young people choose academia and to attract people from the world where there's an international market for talent. So I think we do have to um, uh, make the case that the um, universities um, are sort of integrated. They, they serve society in so many different ways, um, and so we have to support um, learning and research across the board. Um, and uh, uh, the Vince Cable argument is sort of dubious because um, uh, everyone accepts that uh, the UK in the long run um, has to get smarter or we get poorer. We have only uh, uh, 
um, brain power as an asset in the long run. And so, to use a, another metaphor, you know, if, um, uh, if you're in an aircraft and it's overweight, you don't throw off an engine. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, uh, and likewise, uh, uh, um, universities and research are engines of recovery, even in the narrow instrumental sense, and it is foolish uh, to say there's no money for the universities because it will jeopardize the prospects of recovery. And what we're talking about in the context, as I said, of the uh, 83 billion a year that's being cut and 117 billion a year billion bailout of the banks is a small amount of money and it's really short-sighted that it's in jeopardy. Okay, uh, we'd like to take um, contributions. Um, even if you're fantastically famous within the area you work, <laughs> could, you, um, could you identify yourself because it helps other people who might on the off chance not know who you are? Yes. Oh, they're going to be my friend, so I should have said oh, that. So just uh, we'll get my name is Gordon Finlayson. I'm a philosopher at Sussex. I'm also one of the organisers of this event. And I would like to, uh, first of all, thank everyone for coming. Um, because I think this is a very important, and it's likely to be a long campaign. Um, I wanted to pick up a, a point that James made, which is, and just develop it, which is uh, the one about um, the instrumental value becoming the proximate aim of the researchers. I think if you just draw out an implication of that. One, we know that one aim of the government restructuring of university funding in the wake of the Brown Review um, <coughs> is to try to ensure that subjects which they think will benefit the economy um, by equipping students with what they think are directly tradable skills um, will flourish and subjects which don't, in their view, will perish. And that is what they think will drive up quality. Now there's a lot wrong with that as an aim, but as well, what you pointed out is that even if that is an aim, it may well be a fatal remedy. Right? Um, now, first point about that is that that, was a, that aim was contained in the Lambert Review on Business University Cooperation, commissioned by Blair, reported in 2003. It was a policy aim. Um, Lambert says stakeholders, that meant for him politicians and business people, should not only sit on university councils but play a larger role in setting curricula on university courses, um, as well as awarding research funds on the peer review panels. Uh, he conveniently forgot that uh, business people actually aren't peers uh, in, in that sense. But anyway, so that would be, that may well be a fatal rem remedy. And, you know, the problem with fatal remedies is that, in the, you know, uh, that they kill the patient, the medicine kills the patient. It would be terrible um, if we have to kind of see the effects of this only, as it were, after they produce the wrong result. Um, but one thing we can do is look ahead a little bit, right? If that is the aim of education, then surely the best universities would be the ones that are run as corporations, by corporations, like the University of Phoenix run by um, Apollo Corps, which directly sell themselves as, as vocational educational retailers. But we know that, in fact, the University of Phoenix is among the worst institutions and has, as it, uh, as it were, you know, kind of a fairly low educational um, results. So, uh, I mean, you know, that's one thing that we can do. We can actually kind of anticipate the foreseeable consequences of this, of this you know, appalling policy. Thank you very much. Ed, do you want to... Say anything about that, or we'll take some other contributions. Um, yes, uh, we'll take that one in the front row, and then we'll go in back to. 
My name is Alan Gottlieb. I'm a surgeon. I've worked in the NHS for 40 years. Um, first of all, I'd like to say what a wonderful afternoon this has been. Absolutely terrific. Um, never, I'd, like, <clears throat> I'd like to make two points. One, perhaps, may seem somewhat trivial, but politics have been brought up, and Martin Rees started off by doing so. Uh, people may disagree with me, but I see the aim of this government, or part of it anyway, is to dismantle the welfare state. And uh, this attack on education is part of the dismantling of the welfare or public state. And I don't think people in this country realize what is going on. Um, the second thing I, point I want to make is to take issue with Richard Smith about the attitude of doctors today. This may be, may, may be me being somewhat paranoid about attacks on the NHS. But I've worked in the NHS, as I say, for 40 years, and I find that especially the younger doctors today are far better when it comes to dealing with patients in the humanity, in their understanding, in their overall breadth of experience and attitude than were the consultants when I started 40 years ago. So I think in that respect, things have got better. Thank you very much, sir. Um, we'll take it with contributions and then we'll come back to the panel. Um, yes, can we go to the gentleman with the check shirt and then there's, uh, in the very far corner, if we could go there next. Yes, uh, uh, thanks. Uh, my name's David Rodway. I've been teaching in uh, visual art and in art theory and philosophy for 30 years plus. Um, Robert Oppenheimer, physicist Robert Oppenheimer, said something like, no one should escape university without being aware of how little they know. Um, now, uh, one thing we haven't mentioned is that of education as a sort of lifelong process. And this seems to be something also that is hugely under threat. Now, I'm, I'm one of the really lucky ones here, the few lucky ones, because I'm the beneficiary of a free university education in the 60s. And <coughs> that enabled me, horror of horrors, to go and do two degrees. I started off, I did my first degree, which was at Sussex actually, in economics and social sciences. My parents told me, do something useful. Well, the moment I got into that, I thought, wow, this is really fascinating. This is really fantastic. But my real aim was to go on and train in something ludicrous like painting. Um, so I went on and did a seven-year um, study after work in that. Now, the, the, the thing is, we can't foresee the outcomes or way our education is going to take us. I certainly didn't know that this would take me into um, German critical theory, art theory, into things like hermeneutics, dialectics, um, uh, the Frankfurt School, uh, pe uh, people like that, and their general criticism of what was the Enlightenment model and of the kind of positive economics that we had become increasingly skeptical about in the 60s. Um, yes, uh, so uh, nor did I realize that, you know, that there is a problem within our culture, and that's something we haven't mentioned. 
And that is whether academia perhaps should shoulder some of the blame for the plight we find ourselves in. We are stuck with this Enlightenment model, aren't we? This Cartesianism of dividing uh, practice and thought, uh, experience and reason, mind and body, seeing science as shorn of ethics and values, dividing art and science, and those sorts of things. And it is realizing that that led me into a whole load of ideas and insights that um, I spent the last 20 years or so entirely fruitlessly and to no avail trying to publicize. But then, of course, I found the resource in German theory, the idea that the whole of perception and judgment and reasoning are a circular process. Think of Schiller. In order to discern wisdom, we have to be already wise. Or Shakespeare's Lear, wisdom and goodness to the vile seem vile. So we're caught in this circle, and we end up in a closed circle. And this seems to be one of the big problems with the arts and with culture today, and a mass culture that is hostile to learning. It was a very different, it was a very different atmosphere and milieu in the 60s and 70s, before teachers like myself found ourselves on the, um, um, t on, on the uh, rubbish heap when Thatcherism came in and all our departments were closed. Then in the 60s and 70s, it seemed to be that dissent, um, uh, questioning the curriculum, was something to be honored, not something whereby one would be carpeted and hauled before the management who could quickly find a new eager postgrad to fill one's place. So, you know, as, an, as a sort of great gray-haired oldie, um, I look with uh, alarm at the way uh, management and audit culture has taken over our education now. And I sort of think of um, Upton Sinclair, the US writer, when he said, um, it's extremely difficult to get someone to grasp a new idea or note if their job or their income depends on their not grasping it. Lifelong education, what about that? Thanks very much. And um, the gentleman over there. Hello, my name's Keith Yershon. I'm a college lecturer. Um, I'd just like to put a couple of threads to the panel to consider. Uh, thinking about the comments that James made, I must compliment you and not being someone who watches television, you, you sounded in some instances like a grumpy old man with some of the comments you made from a TV series. Uh, which we is need a compliment to, to you. James, James won't get the reference. There's a, there's a popular TV series called Grumpy Old Man. My, my brother is very prominent. <laughs> is he? Your, your brother is in it. Yes, of course yeah, he is. Yeah. But the, the point is that um, what I'd like you to consider is actually the humanity of value and whether society today, one of the reasons we're having this debate, the implication is there's not enough value to other humanities, is because what's endemic is the the celebrity culture and the fact that footballers get millions of pounds for sitting on the bench and there's not enough value to people who do study and spend decades working hard and getting low pay. And the other aspect I'd like you to, to um, think of 
is I've forgotten it, so I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, yes, we haven't heard anything from this side. So the if we get the microphone to the gentleman in the blue shirt, and then when you finish, could you hand it three back to the? Uh, Colin Kramer, I'm a, a student and a philosophy student, actually, and uh, I've faint Marxist leanings, so that that sort of is going to uh, foreshadow the kind of line that I hope to take here. Now, the rough theme of the, the discussion so far has been that somehow the humanities need to defend themselves from their critics. Um, what seems abundantly clear to me is that our, our critics are actually, in fact, largely economists and bankers. Uh, so the strange thing is that the people arguing for, for cuts to humanities are in fact the beneficiaries of the cuts to humanities. And in fact the, the argument should be that they should defend themselves. If the banks are so necessary, so important, we might as well bloody well nationalize them. Okay. Thank you very much. We'll discuss all this in a moment. Um, three, three behind. Uh, Paul Kelly, I'm a professor at LSE. Um, this, this seems to me two possible debates going on here. The first is about the value of the humanities as an end in itself to be pursued by students. The other is inevitably instrumental, which is the value of the humanities to those who are going to fund them. And, and, and the difficulty I found in the debate so far is that we've had lots of statements about why the humanities should be funded by the state without any recognition of, of the choices that have to be made about funding. It's all, all very well and good to say if the choice is only between funding banks and funding the humanities, obviously the humanities win. Although try, try living in a world without banks for a few days. Um, it, it, it's quite difficult. The more important point, though, for the public debate has to be about how much we're prepared, we can be prepared to spend on the humanities or any other aspect of higher education relative to other goods. Now Martin sort of started to talk about this in terms of the size and the character of a university system. Martha in a different way also addressed that question. But if we're really talking about what is most valuable in terms of education, I'm afraid my vote goes to primary year education every time and I'm a beneficiary of funding for the humanities. So there are hard choices here. It's not just enough to say, you know, we're the humanities, we're really important, give us the money. How, how much money are we talking about? And then just one last observation for James. I mean, you mentioned the issue about the Treasury driving the impact agenda and so on. Much of that is actually driven by academics fighting amongst themselves. There has been a deafening silence from the Russell Group universities about the withdrawal of funding to the humanities and the social sciences. Why is that? Because they want to protect medical research and the sciences. There's a conspiracy within the university sector to allow this withdrawal of funding for the humanities to go ahead. It's great to hear Martin's support, but the majority of people who benefit from the withdrawal of funding to the, for, to the social sciences and the humanities are other universities and other areas of study within universities. So universities need to get their own act together and not just pretend that this is something being done to us by the Treasury. We're complicit in this. Let's just pick that point up because that's a very important point. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought I'd directly address that. I mean, right at the beginning, I, I, I wanted to say, um, look, let's assume we're arguing with cynics who won't accept that these things are valuable for their own sake, who want to know why the taxpayer should fund them. And then my point was, first of all, that there's, that the arts and humanities are cheap and that you get a lot for them. Uh, 
Well, I, I mean, I think it's extremely difficult to quantify, but I mean, I was focused on research funding, and there I think I was trying to make the point that, well, um, without going into quantitative analysis, if £480,000 buys you world-class research in a philosophy department for a year, with all the activity that generates, all the books that are published, and the visiting scholars, and the overseas fees, and everything, I find it hard, I mean, it seems qualitative, qualitative argument to say you wouldn't get a lot for, for that kind of money in other comparable areas of professional activity. So, uh, my point really was addressing um, that, that of the, the interests of the taxpayer. I mean, the other point I was making was about the cultural economy. If the cultural economy is the fastest growing in the world and, and worth four or five billion to the UK exchequer, and it seems like you know, burden of proof is on someone who wants to argue that we would have just as good a cultural economy if we hadn't had universities and so many people educated rather than the other way around. Well, look, I mean, I think if you want to broaden it into a discussion, I mean, I took myself to be arguing about the value of the arts and humanities to society, whether I, I, didn't not, I was not engaging uh, in a defence of uh, a particular way of funding 50% of the population to go to university. That's the fees debate, I think, is, is, is somewhat orthogonal. I mean, I, I was thinking about just the value of what we do overall and, uh, and, and, and in particular that... The, Anyone who thinks it's got any value at all should recognise that the pressures that are being put upon us and the way that what we're doing is being distorted will undermine it having that value. That if we're, if we're made to... If you, if you fill universities with the kind of people who don't... Their blood doesn't boil when they read man, this managerial nonsense, who are happy writing strategy documents, who are happy pursuing proximate goals of impact, then you will actually undermine everything that, that's instrumentally valuable about what academics do. That's my, that's my claim. Yeah, I, I guess what I would like to say to this is that I think your argument suggests that there's a fixed slice of the pie that's been allocated to education, and the question before us is how to sub-allocate it between elementary, secondary, and, and university education. But of course, that's not the choice that's before any real country. The, the budget contains many, many different components, and as Lord Rees pointed out, uh, Britain is well below the OECD average in, in uh, its uh, amount that's allocated to education. Korea actually is at the very top, and I think it's no accident that then uh, they think in, in part, of, part of pursuing a really adequate expenditure on education is generous support for the humanities. So, so really it's a matter of looking at all the other things the government spends money on, which is something that as a non-citizen I certainly can't do, but I think that, that's the kind of debate that, uh, that needs to be had. Martin, do, do you accept the argument that the university system is divided, that people are standing by in the non-humanities part of it and just letting it happen? Well, that may be true of the, uh, uh, the leaders of the Russell Group, but I think speaking as a, someone in a university doing science, uh, I think I and my colleagues accept we would not be in such a good university if it was not also strong in the humanities. And clearly uh, it is the strength of the humanities which attracts top-rate students uh, to a place like Cambridge. Um, and I think the proportion that goes to different subjects um, has evolved by 
tensions over the years, and it's probably about right, and I think it would be hard to justify drastic changes, and that's why this drastic reduction is something which uh, one feels has not been justified. Can we comment on the other yeah. comments now? Um, I'd like to, to say um, uh, on the issue of the welfare state being dismantled, um, and also the difference between pre-Thatcher and post-Thatcher. Um, I recommend everyone who hasn't to read the uh, uh, Tony Jutt posthumous book, uh, Ill Fares the Land, uh, which makes a very fine case that uh, uh, sort of the social democratic consensus is now being eroded and many uh, things which were part of the consensus are no longer taken for granted and we have to bang on and keep fighting uh, for these things if we believe that uh, uh, the political consensus between 1945 and 1975 was better than we have now, as many of us do. Um, and um, uh, so, so that's one point. Um, going back to the, the first question about the balance of subjects, um, I certainly think that uh, even on instrumental grounds, um, it's absurd to believe there's little value in uh, foreign languages, obviously, uh, anthropology and sociology and subjects like that. Surely it is crucially important, as Martha has also <coughs> argued, that we should have uh, people who have studied uh, those subjects. Um, and also, um, as was said before, um, it would seem anomalous if the uh, Oxford-educated PPE types who now run the country <coughs> thought their education was a waste of time. I don't think they did. And also, I would like to pay a compliment to one of those people um, and recommend another book, which is uh, David Willits's book called uh, The Pinch. Uh, which is a, a rather good analysis of, uh, of how uh, the baby boom generation has had it good all through their lives. And I think uh, uh, the moral of that is indeed that uh, um, that generation would be more willing to pay high taxes in order to provide for the next generation the benefits they enjoyed. And uh, I hope that his colleagues will read and uh, uh, mark and learn and digest the message of his excellent book. Because yeah. I, I mean, I, I think it's it's always a very legitimate argument when somebody's arguing we need to spend more money on X to say where's it going to come from. I mean, I think there is a legitimate debate about just <coughs> how many savings have to be made and how extensively. But let's put that on one side and say there have to be savings, and it could be that the university sector will say, well, let's fight <coughs> among ourselves as we're going to divide up the money we've got. But I I think I mean I'll tell you where I think a lot of money come, could come from. I think it could come from the NHS. I mean, I had the privilege last week of going to a learning set of six senior people in the NHS who've actually stuck together for 20 years. They were managers who began back in the Griffiths era, as it was called, in the early 80s. One of them's now in the House of Lords. Two of them are regulators. And I thought I would go along with ten iconoclastic thoughts. And one of my thoughts was we should actually cut funding to the NHS because I think there is a lot of room for doing it very differently. So not just making it more efficient, doing what it does now, but actually doing something rather different. And rather to my amazement, every single one of them agreed with me. And they also said, and actually, we would put the money, because I mean, we're talking vast amounts of money for the NHS, you know, something like 110 billion. There's James running his department of 30 people with 450,000. We don't need to give him very much in order to do still more. And I think there is an argument, but I think part of the, I mean, obviously, politicians are extremely nervous about cutting anything to the NHS. And I think it is because of, you know, distorted attitudes to death, of failing to understand just what the nature of healthcare 
is these days. So that's where I would take the money from. But that's not saying, but what would you cut in the NHS? Well, it isn't just a matter of cutting. It's a matter of doing it very differently, I think. I mean, particularly end-of-life care is where huge sums of money go. And yet, I mean, we have, unfortunately, overwhelming evidence of just how bad death is in this country because it goes on too long. And I think that's a sort of conspiracy. To, I wouldn't blame the doctors, nor would I blame the public. It's a kind of conspiracy. Because I also, I, I wanted to pick up on the, the baby boomer bit. I mean, I'm extremely conscious of this. Just like James, I was the first person ever in my family to go to university. No one had even ever done any A-levels before. And there are, there are a lot of us around. And we've done very well for ourselves. You know, I didn't have to worry about getting a job. I have an extremely generous pension that kicks in next year when I'm 60. I have a house that's become ludicrously valuable. And I'm very conscious of this. And it makes me feel bad because life is very tough for my three children who actually do begin to have a very different view of how they want to spend their lives. I mean, one of them lives in Mexico and has sort of become Mexican and has adopted a very different set of values. He studied the humanities and I think, you know, that, so it's, it's somehow it's, there's something shameful about Two Brains Willis who's outlined this baby boomers ripping off the other generation so powerfully that he should be absolutely the front of doing it. Last point, I mean, I think one of the reasons that our politicians think what's going to happen is not so terrible is because they think, well, this goes on on a big scale in the US, and actually they have a great education system. I had spent a year at Stanford, they have Harvard, they have all these fabulous places. Surely it can't be so terrible. But I mean, there can be very, very perverse incentives there. So, I mean, I met a medical student recently from the University of Minnesota. She's going to graduate with a debt of $200,000 which is quite normal for medical students in the US. One consequence is that half the students in a year are going to become dermatologists because you can make a lot of money out of dermatology and don't have to get up at night. And also the US, one of the big failings with the US system is it's very, very poor on primary care. Well, the reason it's so expensive is there's so many kind of specialists relative to primary care, but nobody who graduates is going to go into primary care because you just can't make any money doing that. You have to go and do something like dermatology or neurosurgery or whatever. So it can lead, I think, to very perverse incentives that work their way not through just the consequences for the individuals, but actually the whole system. That was actually true in legal education for a long time, that people would come in and have this debt and not be able to do, go and do public service work, even though they preferred that to working for a firm. And what's happened to address that is that the, I mean, once again, uh, I have to say that, that people have stepped up to the plate and given huge sums of money to the law schools to make scholar, upfront scholarships available so that people don't have to take up these loans. My own university, my own law school just got a huge uh, gift uh, for exactly that purpose and it was uh, now the law schools are competing to be the ones who offer more scholarships for people who want to do public interest work so so I think there are correctives that one can find uh, a very patient lady at the back there yeah thank you very much my name's Alison Astor I work in Bristol at the University of the West of England I teach philosophy um, I just wanted to make a point in response to the colleague over here who um, made the comment about banks um, perhaps the panel might like to imagine a world without banks, but even if the panel doesn't wish to, to engage in that feat of imagination, a world without 173 billion subsidy to the banks versus an 80% cut to the arts and humanities is, I think, a world we, don't, we could very well imagine. And, and perhaps even our, my colleague over here, who does think that the banks play an important role in society, might think that that level of subsidy versus the level of cut that, we're, um, <coughs> we're, that is being proposed in, in the UK is inappropriate. Uh, but I personally find it quite difficult to actually think of really good arguments 
in favour of the Brown proposals. And I, I think the danger is that we're all a, a group of sympathisers here. And the only three arguments that I find even remotely persuasive that I've heard from the, the Lib Dem, from various Lib Dem MPs, and I'd like to hear the views of the panel, panelists on these three arguments. Um, two panelists did touch on this one, which is the point that, the, that Vince Cable and others have made, which is why should the poorest section of the population pay for people who tend to end up earning more? James Ladyman and uh, Martin um, Rees did touch on this point, but I'd like to hear um, views of the panel on this one. The other two arguments I've heard are that the packages actually offer us better provision for the poorest 10 or 15% than the existing provision, and it's better, um, offers bef better provision for part-timers. Now, I, I can think of responses to all of these, these arguments, but these are the only arguments I can actually think of at the moment that are remotely persuasive uh, in relation to the proposals that we face. Thank you. The professor in the corner is very keen to come back in, so if we get the, the uh, briefly, I hope, if we get the microphone right around. The only reason I made the point about banks is I was fortunate enough to have three <coughs> Icelandic students when the Icelandic banks shut. They had nothing. They lived in a world for a few weeks where they couldn't access any money for any reason at all. Their parents couldn't send them money. They, they were penniless. The world without banks is a difficult place to be. That was, that was the only point. I, you know, I've, I've seen the consequences of it. Okay. Um, we're sort of moving towards the close of this. But anyone on the panel want to say? We've got... Yes, the lady in the front. Hi, I'm Margaret Sharp, and I sit on the Lib Dem benches in the House of Lords. Um, <laughs> it's a difficult position to, to be in, and I did actually speak against the uh, rise in fees last week. Um, <laughs> I might add that um, to the lady who was at the back there who was asking about what, you know, why did the Lib Dems um, thing, there is a, the argument that one of the problems about the number of people from lower income families getting into university is of course they're not that very men, they're not very many of them who get top grades at A levels um, and, and that there, that's why it is actually necessary to put some of the money in to the primary schools and the secondary schools and try to make sure that we actually get more of them achieving more highly at that level and open up opportunities there. So, the, I mean, the money is therefore going into the 2.5 billion into the, what's called the premium, the pupil premium. But what I wanted actually to bring up, I'm, not, I'm, I'm in the House of Lords, but I'm, I actually spent most of my life as an academic, partly here at LSE, but also the University of Sussex, where I was at the Science Policy Research Unit. And during the 1980s, I wanted to sort of go back to the 80s, when we felt we really faced a, a very similar problem at the beginning of the 80s, when 20% was cut off university budgets. But it was really cut off across the board. And I got involved with a, 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 a group called Save British Science, which was trying to argue that this, how wrong the whole uh, essence of what was being done was, because, and I was very taken by Martin's um, <laughs> repost here, that um, if the aircraft is overweight, you don't throw off the engine. Because essentially that was what we were trying to argue. And we argued very hard with the Treasury about the 
um, that there were wider benefits to society from investing in basic science. So this was the, the core of what we were doing. And, I mean, that Martin was also at one point, well, he still is. I mean, he and I are both now, I think, patrons of this organization, which no longer calls itself Save British Science, but now calls itself the Campaign for the Advancement of Science and Engineering. And what it struck me was perhaps, Martin, we were too, we, we, were, we were too successful in terms of persuading the Treasury, because during the Sainsbury era of being the chief scientist, um, the, the, the Minister for Science, we, in many senses, we got the money. It, we got much more money into science. We rebuilt the infrastructure, which was desperately necessary. And, um, and this has it's led the Treasury to recognize that there are wider benefits to investing in science and engineering, but really not recognizing the wider benefits to society from the broader investment in, in universities generally. And let me just leave you with one further thought, which I, I, I attended, I suppose, about a couple of weeks ago. There was a big conference here in London for, run by the universities UK about you know, financing of universities and so forth. And every single speaker from UUK started by praising how brilliant like British universities were, how we punched above our weight, how in, and, and so on and so forth. And how you know, the, the reason why they're arguing for these high fees of the Russell Group are is they want more money in order to continue. Um, and the only way they could get more money was, was increased fees. Well, you know, one response to that, well, you know, if it ain't broke, and actually if it's doing very well, why change it? Uh, yes, uh, we'll take a, a couple more. At the, um, the very back, and then if we get the other microphone to the, the gentleman in the middle here. Um, I'm just a student, but I just wanted to, what I see as one of the biggest reasons why the humanities are under threat is that they're seen as a luxury. I think someone made the comment earlier that there's this idea that people can live without them. And I've been very interested to hear um, medics talk about the humanities here because as far as I can see, living in the modern world sort of without the ability to critically evaluate arguments, without the ability to feel connected to a culture, is, is not really something that people can do anymore. And I think the rises we see in self-defeating um, behavior, things like addiction, things like obesity, can be connected very much to the fact that living in the modern world requires an education, that it's very difficult to feel that you're living in a fulfilled way without a real liberal education. And so I think you can make the argument very much that the humanities aren't a luxury, that the culture that trickles down from you know, everything that happens in universities, and surely you know, this is the thing that's behind the idea of public museums, the idea of free libraries, it's, we respect that culture. And if that culture can't exist without the trickle-down effect of universities, then you know, what, what's being proposed is, is cuts to the thing that, that allow just a way of life, not only a luxury. Thank you very much. And then, um, could you just pass it two rows forward? That, well, that's great. Thanks. Uh, just to quickly collapse the argument on uh, the way the academic community can practically uh, react to these decisions. We all seem to agree that it's a bad decision. Uh, I would like to use the example. Well before the cuts were announced in, I don't know, late September, October, uh, the scientific community uh, started a very popular campaign called Science is Vital which was very um, 
spread it all over the internet, and there's been a march in London that ended up on the BBC. This was well before the cuts. Um, you know, uh, I'd like to make some self, I'm a um, philosophy PhD student, so some self-critique. Uh, why are we here after the cuts? Why, why was this, the scientific community so uh, well organized in preemptively uh, go against the cuts? And, we, and the, the humanities seem always to be so internally fragmented that we're able to you know, join up with, it, with each other only after the bad decision has been made. Thank you very much. Um, would the panel like to make any, any closing statements as to what should happen next or just sum up or whatever? Well, to address yeah. some of these questions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I would like to address two of the questions. I mean, there was the point long ago about celebrity culture, and I just want to uh, shift that slightly and talk about the role of the media. I think one of our biggest problems is the decline in reflective, argumentative humanistic media, the places where one can actually find good argument, uh, certainly in the US, but I think to some extent here as well, have, have, uh, have declined. And this uh, creates a, a kind of a quick thinking, hasty public culture that, 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 that really makes it much harder to get our point across. And I think we really have to think about that and try to work with, with journalists uh, to, to put our ideas forward and, and to try to create television programs. I think you have a much better chance of doing that than we do in the States uh, because of the BBC programs that contain people who listen to each other, who actually have an argument rather than yelling at each other and, uh, and, and shouting slogans. And, and so um, that's something that we haven't really talked about here and, and I'd like to hear what other panelists have, have to say, but I do think that's one, one big ingredient of our problem. The other thing, I wanted to address the student's point about what happens without that because I've done, I've spent a lot of my career working in India and uh, studied the, the rise of the Hindu right and so on. And I think um, you know what you saw ever since Nehru was uh, that, that the humanities were totally marginalized from the time of independence on. And although the first generation of the founders were deeply humanistically educated, they just didn't think that when you're going to jumpstart people out of poverty, that was the thing you wanted to focus on. Uh, Nehru was almost embarrassed about his own humanistic education. So, seven, 60 years down the road, what do you get? Well, you get institutes of technology and management that are the prestigious places where everyone wants to send their kids. The schools that Tagore founded, which did emphasize the humanities, are just totally unfashionable. Um, and in those institutes, the instructors themselves have now started to introduce humanities courses because they see that their students do not know how to relate to a student of different religion or different caste. There are such problems of ethnic tension and in some cases violence that they think, how do we address this? We need to make people understand each other and understand their own history and so on. So that's quite interesting. And the other thing I'll mention is that uh, you see in the state, which has particularly for a long time extirpated the humanities, that is the state of Gujarat, what happens is that the natural tendencies of human beings, which psychologists are long aware of, that is tendencies to submit to authority 
and to peer pressure that have been experimentally uh, demonstrated. These tendencies come to the fore, and uh, where there's no critical argument taught, those tendencies will dominate, and you get the creation of a public culture that goes by the voice of a charismatic leader and is willing to uh, slaughter innocent civilians when that leader says, this is what you ought to do, and the police will sit on their hands and do nothing about that because that's what this leader says that you're going to do. So I think we see in a very direct form what, uh, what you get when the humanities are cut away. And it's a, almost like an experimental laboratory of a most unfortunate kind. Yeah, because, I mean, clearly, you know, what do we do now? What happens? It must be the question at the front of our mind. I mean, I think here we're mostly preaching to the converted. We don't have Vince Cable here. And we, don't, you know, we don't have many people, I think, in the audience who disagree fundamentally with what we're arguing. And clearly the first step, in a way, is to, is to organize and I think Save British Science, which I remember very vividly, is potentially a very good model. Secondly, I think it is going to be very important to bring together as many different groups from other sectors of society. Although bankers are the kind of whipping boys, I think having bankers arguing for the arts and the humanities and economists, and I don't think it would be difficult at all to find doctors. I suspect there are many politicians, particularly in the House of Lords, who would be very supportive. So many different groups, so that it's not just uh, special pleading. And I think, and I think too, it, it feels to me like the established bodies are perhaps not enough I mean, much more was needed than the Royal Society back in those days of Save British Science. Then I suppose to assemble a range of arguments. I think it is a trap to fall into always arguing, you know, that somehow this, you know, this, this will help us solve important problems. I think it's also important, and that was part, as I remember it vividly, of Save British Science. As well. It's not just about, you know, we will make more money for the economy. It's also that this is a fundamentally good thing in itself to do. You need to find funding, I suppose, need to think long term. I don't think this is something that's going to happen overnight. And finally, I'd agree very much with Martha. I think it is very important to reach out to the public in many different sorts of ways. And I wanted, I wanted to congratulate Mark. I think it's marvellous that he's come along and given up time to do this, because you are a very well-known voice, and you've come and you've listened, and I'm sure you can help people reach out to a broader audience. I wanted to thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Martin and James, do you want to just say a final word? Yes. <clears throat> well, following up with Margaret Sharp, I mean, I think uh, the campaign for science 25 years ago and the very effective campaign, uh, which did lead to the uh, ring fence science budget for research councils, etc., being preserved, that did uh, come from this campaign. But the fact is, it was based on arguments of an instrumental kind. I think that argument would not have worked so well for the humanities. Um, and I think, therefore, that the way the campaign of the humanities has to be run is as part of an <coughs> argument for uh, broad and strong universities. Uh, there's, as we've seen, tremendous interest in universities and the fees, etc., and there be tremendous interest in ensuring that our universities stay up to standard. And I think we can easily make the case that they can't stay up to standard uh, unless they are able to uh, provide very strong courses in the humanities unless they have some high-profile professors who are attractive from abroad rather than high-profile defections all the time to the US. That sort of thing will have an impact on all the people who are paying fees or whose 
parents are paying fees for universities. So I would say that for the humanities, one has to embed it in the uh, general welfare of the universities, rather than just uh, humanities research by itself. And James has got to go back and analyse concepts in the Bristol Main area um, in, in a moment. <laughs> before you go, would you like a um, last word? Well, I just like to, yeah, I think a lot of the arguments against the worth of what we do are very easily countered. I'll just give you an anecdote. A colleague of mine who's a teacher in the maths department had a discussion about the big debate with her students and one guy said, it's just obvious that we don't need to have historians. What a waste of time. So <laughs> she said, as, as, as gently as she could, um, I, I'm from Germany, and I, I think that it's, um, awareness of history is particularly important for obvious reasons. And he said, oh, right, yeah, maybe history wasn't such a good example. <laughs> so, I think, you know... <laughs> So he produces next example, and then you just knock that down straight away, and then the next one, and then the argument's finished. So I don't think the argument's a particularly difficult one to have. I think it's very, very easy for us to take for granted the arts and humanities. We uh, are anatomically pretty indistinguishable from human beings 100,000 years ago. What makes us who we are are ideas. Those ideas were once cognitive achievements. We take them for granted. You take them for granted, you can talk about your rights. You take it for granted that you can be an atheist. But these things were once unthinkable. Somebody had to forge ahead and think them. And uh, arts and humanities both uh, create the space for, for, for future ideas and also free us up and remind us and, uh, of exactly uh, where we've come from and, and, and who we are. And so um, we, we, we need to just uh, counter these arguments as much as possible and, and just state the obvious, really, I think. Um, it has to be very brief, but a contribution from... Yes, Ronnie Corbett, which will mean more to some people <laughs> in the room um, than others. So um, thank you very much to um, all the panel um, and uh, to all of you. Thank you.
on for a long time, <laughs> but it was like five minutes. Mm. It was absolutely brilliant. And I hope that this will allow us a beginning, at least, of some way of redressing the balance of the difficulty we are, we're in.